Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello. Welcome to another Say Why to Drugs. In this episode, you can listen to a recording of the event I did at Foyle's Bookshop in Bristol the day after Say Why to Drugs the book came out. It was part of an excellent series of events called Bristol Takes Drugs Seriously, which you can hear James Nichols, who I was in conversation with, mention. James is the CEO of Transform, an organisation that campaigns for evidence-based drug policy reform. But before we get to our conversation, if you're interested in coming to hear me speak at an event like this live, then there are lots of opportunities coming up. In fact, there will be lots more, but some of them haven't been officially announced yet. The wonderful Jim Murray made me a website as a Christmas present this year, so now you can check susiegage.co.uk to find out when new dates will be announced. But for now, I'll be in Liverpool on the 27th of February, where I'll be at the Waterstones in Liverpool 1, in conversation with the brilliant Mick Coyle, whose Mental Health Mondays radio show I've been on three times now. You can come to a live podcast recording in London on the 7th of March as part of Vault Festival in association with Child.org. And I've got some really fantastic guests lined up for that one, so I would recommend getting tickets kits um i'll also be at i write literary festival in glasgow is that not the best named thing ever um and that's on march the 14th and i'll be at waterstones in tottenham court road on the 31st of march with the brilliant stop and search podcast and i'm doing oxford skeptics in the pub on the 1st of july There'll also be loads of other stuff announced soon, including literary, science and hopefully music festivals, as well as other bits and bobs across the country. So keep checking the website or my Twitter for more information. Also, of course, I would just like to say thank you so much to everyone who's bought the book so far. It's been so exciting to see pictures of it when you've seen it in bookshops and pictures of you reading it. And um Something else that seems to have happened a lot, which I'm very happy about, is lots of pictures of the book with your favourite pet. So please keep sending me more of those because they're brilliant. Um, If you enjoyed reading it and you want to leave a review on Amazon, then the sad truth is that it really does make a difference to the algorithm gods. So I would be eternally grateful. But that's enough promo. Um, As I said at the beginning, this episode was recorded at Foyle's Bookshop in Bristol, which is a really, really lovely shop with super lovely staff. So thank you to them for hosting it. The podcast is The Conversation Between Myself and James. There was a QA and a afterwards, but um, the questions didn't really come out very well on the recording. So that's ended up just being one for the people in the room, I'm afraid. But I really hope that you enjoy this wide ranging discussion. Say why to drugs. 
Susie about about this book, as I say, I've 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 read it and I can I can thoroughly recommend it already. Um, Susie, for those of you who 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 don't know, if any of you don't, is a senior lecturer in psychology at the University of Liverpool. Though she previously both studied and worked here at here at the University of, of Bristol with colleagues from the Tobacco and Alcohol Research Group, some of whom are, are here. Um, she's a presenter of the excellent Say Why to Drugs podcast, who many of you which many of you will, will know. It's fantastic. Uh, podcast and was uh, previously a regular contributor to the Guardian on the sifting the evidence column, which I always thought was a fantastic, a fantastic um, uh, uh, column. She's previously been awarded the uh, Ockham Award for best podcast by Skeptic Magazine, uh, a public communications award by the British Association for Psychopharmacology, which is fantastic, and um, the UK Science Blog Prize by the Good Thinking Society. Um, essentially, Susie. Has Two things. One, she really knows her stuff, and secondly, is really good at communicating that stuff. So that's a great combination, uh, and again, it's captured very well in that book. So I'm really delighted to, uh, to be, have this opportunity to um, discuss some of the issues in the book and around drugs with uh, Susie, uh, and then afterwards, we'll open that up to everyone to ask their own questions as well. But I'm nabbing the floor for the first few minutes because I get to do that, and I'm really excited to be able to do that. So, so the first question that I... Is, a kind of more general question, really, which is, what made you say why to drugs, first of all? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, I guess in terms of sort of why did I pick it as a research career, I did my undergrad at UCL. I did psychology. And part of when you were studying at UCL, you could go and do modules in other, in other departments. And I saw that there was a module in the pharmacology department called Drugs and the Mind, and I just thought that sounded really interesting. And then I heard about the practical and I was like, OK, I'm definitely doing this module because the practical was they got us all to either drink alcohol or um, take nitrous oxide and then do. A, well, before we did it and afterwards, do a load of sort of cognitive tasks and fine motor tasks. So, you know, that thing where you've got a, a bit of wire and a little hook thing and you have to wind it around without buzzing. So one of those and like doing some mental arithmetic and that kind of thing. And I just thought oh, this is really interesting, sort of thinking about the different effects that drugs have. Because when you're kind of growing up, you're sort of told all drugs are the same, all drugs are bad, and all drugs, like, you shouldn't do drugs, all drugs are bad. And it was really interesting to think about, well, actually, they're all different. And so they have completely different effects. And some might affect your fine motor skills, but your cognition might be relatively spared, and some might have, like, the opposite effect. Mm. And so I thought, OK, this is really interesting. And I was a bit gutted because I ended up in the placebo alcohol condition, so I had to do these tasks before and after a glass of orange juice. But, um, <laughs> but the point remained that it was, really, it was a really interesting. And I think still at that point, I didn't realise that drugs research could actually be a career, or I didn't think it could be a career for me anyway because I was sort of plodding through my degree. I was fine, but I wasn't... So, I thought that would be 
the thing that everyone wanted to do because it's so cool and like so all the high flyers will get to do that and I'll just stick to something a bit more pedestrian I didn't even necessarily think when I was an undergrad that actually research could be a career I sort of rather naively thought that my lecturers were just teachers and I get really annoyed now when students think that about me and I have to remind myself that that's what I thought too but it took a long time of um so I moved to Bristol after I did my degree because I was in a band and all the rest of my band lived here and I had a few years of kind of not really doing anything researchy at all then I got a job at Bristol Uni as a researcher but doing all sorts of weird and wonderful projects like had to recruit people who had spoken Hindi or Zulu when they were children but not since and because I was working in the language group at the time and various random projects until I ended up kind of fortuitously really working in the tobacco and alcohol research group and I was like oh my god I've ended up doing the thing I wanted to do when I was 18 but not really setting out to do it um, so there's an incredibly long-winded answer as to why I ended up doing this research but why I started saying why to drugs in the sort of podcast was when I started my PhD which was looking at the links between um, cannabis and tobacco in particular and mental health it became sort of apparent really quickly just how much kind of misinformation there was about about these drugs like the legal drugs and the illicit drugs and I initially I started writing a blog partly because there was all this misinformation and also just because I thought I was going to have to write my PhD at the end of this my thesis at the end of this process so I might as well practice writing and when I'd started writing about drugs about drugs research people were really interested in it so it was sort of seen well I'd carry on doing this and the podcast kind of came out of that because writing is all well and good but that only reaches a certain audience so I was trying to think of they're not necessarily people who read the Guardian aren't necessarily the people who necess- who need this information the most, you know. So I was trying to think of different ways to get messages out there or information and help people make informed decisions by giving them the tools that they need to understand the evidence and potentially to sort of like synthesize it themselves. It's that you read an article in in the newspaper and you think, well, is that good quality evidence or is that is that a good study? Is that a weak study? How do I tell? So trying to sort of get some of that like stealth stats lessons in there as well. Mm. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, do you have a sense of different kind of audiences or the different kinds of people who might benefit from that information? Do you, do you kind of feel yourself presenting information differently to say if it's someone who was like, I don't know, a parent who was wanted to know about drugs but didn't really have an experience or someone who's interested and, and, and you know, takes various drugs and, and has a different kind of interest are you kind of conscious that those different groups might require something different and might, or might do something different with the information they get that's something i'm really thinking about at the moment so i've been funded by the welcome trust actually to explore that exact issue of what people or what groups of people might find this information particularly useful and what what barriers might there be for accessing information in various different forms and how might i work with different groups of people to make this information more accessible and that's kind of an ongoing project at the moment but I think one thing is having it available in a variety of different formats is a good is a good kind of start. Mm. Uh, it's kind of funny I was going to avoid the myth busting question too much but do you get a sense that the myths about drugs are different amongst people who don't know about drugs and that but there's also myths within drug cultures or drug subcultures and do you, do you get a kind of sense of those and are you interested in 
tackling all of those things? Well, I'm really interested in where the myths come from, but it's really hard to unpick. And I think given there are so many myths about alcohol and tobacco and even coffee, that it's not just a sort of illicit drug subculture whisperings and Chinese whispers kind of thing. There's also something about like the legal drugs that we take. We still get this misinformation, although maybe around alcohol it's sort of Sometimes it might be a bit more wishful thinking than, um, than misinformation of just like, oh, I really want red wine to be good for me because I really like red wine. <laughs> so, I'm, but yeah, where do myths come from and do they, are they different in different groups? That's a really good question. I don't know. Mm, I, want yeah. to, I want to go and look into that now. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Go to your next book. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, something that isn't, isn't a myth but is, is a kind of unresolved question, and I know you've done a, well, a, a huge amount of work around, is cannabis and particularly cannabis and psychosis where do you think we are at the moment in terms of understanding that relationship and what do we still need to find out yeah i think the evidence from kind of observational epidemiology so that is taking um groups of people and watching what they choose to do following them up over time so seeing which people choose to use cannabis and which people choose not to and seeing whether the people who choose to use cannabis are more likely to develop psychosis and from that kind of evidence there is an association between people who use lots of particularly high potency cannabis it seems to be coming out do seem to be at greater risk of going on to develop psychosis than people who don't use very very high potency cannabis multiple times a day However, the people who choose to use cannabis in that way are different from the people who don't. And so when you're doing these studies, you have to try and take into account all of these differences as well. And that's really, really hard to do because you not only have to know what every single difference is, but you also have to have a good measure of it in your data set. And we can never be 100% sure that both of those things are covered. So whenever we do these studies, we always have to interpret them with a bit of caution. So they, lots and lots of these studies have done, and they've all tried to take all these factors into account. And they do broadly seem to find that this association seems to be there. But it's really driven by the people who are using high-potency cannabis every day. And I kind of think of it the way I would think about alcohol. So the difference between someone who might have a few beers after work versus someone who drinks vodka for breakfast, yes, they're probably doing themselves physical harm from the alcohol, but also that pattern of behaviour is potentially indicative of all sorts of other things going on in their lives as well. And that might actually be the behaviour of, of using that amount of strong cannabis might be sort of a symptom rather than a cause. Mm. And so untangling that is incredibly hard. So people in Bristol and in other places are looking at different methods to try and come at the question from a different angle and I think that might be able to tell us more in the future because I think we've kind of exhausted this way of using this kind of traditional epidemiological method because obviously we can't do a randomised controlled trial, you can't take a group of uh, 13 year olds and say right you guys go off and use cannabis for all your teenage years, you guys go off and drink some alcohol, you guys don't do anything. For lots of reasons we can't do that. (laughs) So you know we're kind of stuck with observing so we need to think about novel ways to try and design in sort of checks and balances Mm. into these studies so that's what's like work that's going on here I think could potentially tell us a lot about that. I mean it's interesting because I mean previously I used to work in alcohol research and one of the big problems there was that when you asked people how much they drink invariably they say considerably less than appears to be the case so if you look at the amount that 
people say they drink at a population level and you compare it to the amount that's sold, it's usually about 50% lower. <laughs> and so you've got this problem of what people say they do. And it seems to me the way around that is possibly to do kind of, you know, observing people while they, while they drink. Because if you observe someone while they drink and we get them to observe themselves, they don't drink the way they would do normally. Yeah. So it seems there's always like a black box there, isn't there, that you can never quite get into. Or, you know, yeah. Um, and all this isn't to say that, that cannabis might not increase the risk of psychosis. Particularly there might be people who have other vulnerabilities as well. And for them, cannabis might be an extra thing that sort of adds on to their risk. But it's just really difficult to say for certain. And also, I think the key thing would be, who are those people and how can we sort of help them to stay safe and avoid developing something like psychosis? Mm -hmm. I was thinking um, when I was reading the book, one of the things that really struck me, as someone who used to smoke rolling tobacco, was um, you, you were talking about the kind of way in which, you know, obviously addiction's a complex thing and there's lots of different ways to think about how depend, patterns of dependence emerge. But I recall very strongly that one of the things that I used to love when I was a smoker was I loved, ro I loved rolling... I still do that now when I talk about it. I get that kind of feeling. and I love the whole kind of ritual around it. I love the routine around it. I love the sensation of it. I'm, I'm pretty sure I preferred that to the effect of nicotine, actually, as, as a thing. And that also raises all sorts of questions about the relationship between behaviour and, and uh, patterns of behaviour and habit and stuff. Which raises the bigger question about you know, what we do and don't know about dependency or, or, or addiction, how we phrase it. I mean, what's your kind of sense of that relationship and, and where are we in terms of, would you see as, of how much we understand dependence or addiction and where we need to go with that and, and how far off we are? Or if, even if it's an answerable question, I mean, mm. you know. Well, I mean, as a sort of psychologist, that's something that I have a particular interest in as well, like understanding it's not just about the sort of biological effect of a substance as to why people might develop dependence to it. We know that people are more likely to develop problematic use from a substance or dependence from a substance because of why they're using it. So if people are using, sorry, alcohol, for example, if people are drinking because they feel like they need to, that's a real warning sign that their drinking might become heavier and become more problematic and start to impact on their life. Because if they're you're using a substance as a crutch, that, that's how you can sort of get into a quite a problematic relationship with it. But also what you're talking about, the kind of ritual of rolling a cigarette to smoke, sometimes even once the sort of nicotine biological dependence has passed, those kind of cues are much more sort of pervasive and harder to get through and when you find yourself in the same environment again as where you used to smoke you see these things that remind you of smoking and you start to your fingers start to sort of go there and you know um that can then mean you're much more likely to have a relapse if you're in an environment surrounded by the cues that you associate with taking that substance mm. and that's true for all sorts of different substances it gets very political around addiction and addiction studies you know the kind of chronic relapsing brain disease model has its own um, politics around it, as do, on, I suppose, on the far other extreme, the kind of public health, or one of the public health views, which is that actually addiction is just what we call heavy use over time kind of thing. I mean, have you got a kind of sense of how useful even ideas around addiction actually are if we're thinking about substance use? Yeah, addiction's quite a difficult term because mm. it's, 
it's, some, it's a term that we use all the time, sort of colloquially. I know that I've definitely said, oh, I'm addicted to this new ice cream or chocolate bar or computer game or whatever. And I don't mean that I've got an addiction to it or I'm dependent on it or something. It means I really enjoy it. And really enjoying something is not, is, is not a bad thing. When it becomes a bad thing, when it starts to knock your life off kilter, when there's a p- potential or uh, actual risk of harm from your sort of want or want kind of turning into a need for a substance or anything like that, if it starts to impact on your ability to work or your family relationships, that kind of thing. I think that when we talk about addiction in a kind of medical or uh, research term, we kind of mean something more like that. But even saying that, I think there's still a disagreement in the, in the sort of research field about how we should use this term. And I think using kind of stigmatising language like referring to addicts is something that's rightly kind of falling out of favour and um, people are beginning to realise that actually language has impacts. There's been lots of research done, well not lots but some and I'm, I'm involved in some more at the moment, looking at giving people vignettes about um, people with substance use problems and changing the language from neutral to sort of more kind of stigmatising language, talking about being clean, sort of implying that someone was dirty beforehand, that kind of thing. And the language that's used does really seem to impact on how people are then given a sort of set of questions about would you mind if this person lived next door to you, would you let this person babysit your children, you know, this kind of thing. And the language that's used in those vignettes really seems to impact on how people answer those questions. And the worrying thing was it wasn't just people, sort of general public people, it was also... um, people who worked um, with people who used substances or people who worked um, in, I think it was psychiatric nurses might have, might have filled this out. But it was a sort of group of people who would come into contact with people who use drugs regularly. And so the language is really, really important. And I think that's why we need to be really careful when we're talking particularly about something like addiction. And this has slightly gone off the question that you've actually asked me, so sorry, but... I thought it was interesting and relevant. <laughs> so I knocked myself onto a tangent. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, I, I agree. I, th- I think it really is because I think, you know, addiction, dependency, recovery, all that kind of stuff is, is a lot to do with self-identification, right? In the same way that, uh, I, I, you know, um, identifying as a, a user of, as a drinker or as a smoker or as whatever else it may be, seems to me that relationship between self-identification I see myself as this kind of person and what you do is really critical, right? Yeah, and I think that's another key point about language is that for some people who are um, in recovery, identifying... I've spoken to people uh, who say, oh, well, I identify as an alcoholic because it reminds me every day not to have a drink. And so, but there's a world of difference between identifying as something and having a label put on you. Mm. And I think that's the thing that needs to be sort of kept in mind when we're having these kind of conversations. Yeah. I'm going to ask you another question about addiction here, which is to do with, you talk a bit in your book, and I, and you, I know you did some work with uh, Harry Sumlin in Liverpool uh, around uh, the Rat Park study, the famous Rat Park. I don't know how many people here will have heard of the, uh, the Rat Park study, and I don't know whether you maybe want to kind of give it a brief overview of it. Um, but you've kind of challenged that as not incorrect, but maybe something that's been slightly overcooked in terms of what it tells us about about addiction and social context. Yeah, well, like, so I can read the bit. So in my proposal, I wrote about Rat Park before I did this research. So, yeah, so this is what I wrote in my book proposal about Rat Park. I wrote, 
Bruce Alexander found that rats in cages in his psychology department would self-administer morphine at high levels. The rats were kept in small metal cages, isolated from each other and from pretty much any stimulation at all. The only thing they really saw were the psychologists who fed them and occasionally made them do a water maze or some other experiment. So Alexander built Rat Park, a large cage complex where multiple rats were housed, with room to roam, levels to explore and all manner of stimulation. He found that rats in this environment were far less likely to self-administer morphine and were more likely to drink plain water. And that, that's what I thought Rat Park was when I, when I sort of first started writing this book and before I went back and read the actual original papers, I thought rats in isolation would self-administer morphine until, until they died, basically, and that rats in Rat Park, when, when rats were put in an environment where they had room to roam, other rats to socialise with, they wouldn't touch the morphine-infused water at all. they just drink the water. But when I actually went back and read the papers, it was much, much less extreme than that. It's one of those examples where if a story seems good, too good to be true, then it probably is. And it's not to say that Rat Park didn't find some really interesting findings, because it did, but what's missed out of that telling of the story is that actually none of the rats in isolation or in Rat Park initially touched the morphine-infused water at all. They had to have their normal water taken away for about 51 days in both groups before they started to use. They basically were sort of pre-addicted to the morphine-infused water. And then that was so extreme that actually rats in both conditions died during that, during that sort of initial phase. There were actually, by that point, there were only two female isolated rats left, and they were by far the heaviest morphine users in the experiment so they really kind of drove this distinction between the two between the rat isolated rats and the rat park rats so all this isn't to say that like the findings of rat park are still true in that environment is incredibly important in terms of risk of addiction and sort of support and kind of stimulation and like being isolated is a really strong risk factor for developing problematic substance use for risk of, of dying from your substance use for all sorts of very negative outcomes so the result like the the way that rat park is used to tell a, a story is true but actually what rat park found is much less sexy than the way it's often portrayed yeah i mean i suppose it's one of those things where you, you get a really brilliant piece of, of work but um i, I guess this <laughs> often happens it, it goes into the kind of um the culture, doesn't it? And it takes on a life yeah. of its own and then starts to re, be reinstated. Yeah, there are co- there's like an amazing comic about Rat Park. And actually, that's much more based on the original studies. I think the person who made that comic went back and read the original studies as well. Mm. The other thing about Rat Park is that they measured how, how much morphine and water had been drunk differently in the two different conditions, which in, in experimental research is a massive no-no because it can really introduce sort of systematic bias. If one way of measuring constantly overestimates and the other way constantly underestimates, then you'll see a difference even if there's no difference at all. So in the rat park, they, all the rats had different like, tattoos or colours on their heads and then there was this uh, laser beam that they had to cross to release a drop of the liquid and then a camera took their picture and that's how it was all calculated. And then the rats in isolation had their water bottles weighed at the beginning at the end of the day and that's how they measured how much had been drunk. So it's like completely different ways of measuring across the two conditions too it's interesting actually because in that case rats but it, that kind of raises as well that kind of question about if we want to understand there's a real difficulty it seems to me about and this goes back to the measurement thing as well if you want to understand why people take whatever drugs they do how people respond 
it seems to me it's almost impossible to create an environment which is the environment in which people in everyday life yeah. do that thing. Yeah. And as soon as you put it into a into a, a kind of test environment, whatever that may be, and observe it again, it's like the kind of um, you know. Uh, the Schrodinger's cat or something, or the, you know, your, what's the, I can't remember the, the principle, you know, you can see how fast something's moving, but you don't know where it is, or the other way around. It's that you, you, know, you can watch, you can talk, you, you can ask people what they're, what they're doing or thinking when they're taking drugs, or you can watch them, but it's very, very hard, isn't it, to actually just naturalistically capture what people are doing and thinking in those environments. So we're always at one step. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, funny because sort of all of us are or almost all of us are drug users of some kind if we include things like alcohol and caffeine then and yet it's still something that we sort of mythologize and we don't understand very well um yeah like in liverpool university we have a bar lab so a room in our university that we've done out to look like a bar so it's got taps and it's got sort of optics and all of this kind of stuff but I mean you still have to walk through a psychology department <laughs> to get to it it's not I mean I've still been trying to persuade them that we need like a pub sign to give it some really nerdy name like I can't think maybe the rat park <laughs> but yeah something something like that but it's still like yeah but then work that has been done in the tobacco and alcohol research group at Bristol has kind of done the opposite and that they've gone into a local pub and done experiments where for example they changed all of the glasses one night so one Friday night, everyone got served all their drinks in straight glasses. One, the next Friday night, everyone got served all their drinks in curved glasses. And see, then you can add, mm. look at the bar takings and um, see, does the shape of the glass have an impact on how much the pub sells that night? So it's like, really, like that's quite a good way of... People don't... I mean, it's, the tricky thing is getting those kind of things past ethics committees because uh, it's sort of persuading that that sort of... People not knowing they're being kind of experimented on mm. until after the fact so there are obviously there are ways that you can do that so it's worth kind of thinking about but ways to make it as naturalistic as possible mm. i think can tell us some really really interesting things yeah. but we need to do both because those kind of experiments have obviously their own limitations so what you need to do is do as many different designs that all have different limitations that you can and sort of hope that everything triangulates rather than the messy world that we live in, where everything gives us a slightly different result and actually we're no closer to the truth at all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not that I find it frustrating sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's interesting to talk about kind of setting and environment and context and use and experiences. And also, actually, I suppose now talking about one of the areas where there's a lot of research going on. I'm kind of particularly interested in it, and also it's about myths and, and, and what people think about, about drugs about some of your thoughts around um, psychedelics. I mean, it's, a, it's an area where there's a lot of research going on at the moment. But it also seems to me one of the most fascinating things about psychedelics is that while on the one hand it's a, it's a, it's a very extreme experience and, and is experienced as, in some forms, kind of transcendent and, and, and as providing a kind of a truth which is outside of culture and outside of setting, and yet we seem to know that um, the psychedelic experiences are very suggestible, that people, what people see often what they may expect to see or interpret their experiences in ways that are really embedded in culture. Um, I mean, I don't know if you've got any kind of... What are your kind of thoughts on, on both that and also where psychedelics research is, is going? Yeah, I think, I think it's a really interesting time for psychedelics research, but possibly it's not quite as interesting as the media are making out at the moment because it's such a kind of... It's so interesting and people really want to know about it that actually a lot of these studies are being reported before 
they've really found anything. So I, lot, like, a lot of the studies that make headlines are kind of what are called sort of open label studies. So they're not blinded. Everyone knows what condition they're in. They're on very small numbers of people and they're more sort of um, studies that are, are about kind of checking that the protocol works rather than actually trying to find any results or any differences between groups or anything like that. They've been designed to see if the study can run. But then if they show anything at all, they get reported saying like, look, this, this might, this mushrooms might cure depression kind of thing. And may, yeah, they might, but we're a very long way off that being found sort of with good quality evidence. And not only that, but this isn't taking a psychedelic like, and then sort of being sent away and told, of, told to go, you're fine now, off you go. It's part of a sort of long um, talking therapy over potentially months, and it's sort of built into psychotherapy. It's not, it's not just a case of have a trip, off you go, you're great. It's like, this, it's like part of this, of this psychotherapy, and I think that sometimes gets lost in the telling as well, mm. that it can be a way of experiencing a different kind of, a sort of conversation within that therapeutic setting, but that therapeutic setting is very important. Mm. And I think your point about the sort of suggestibility of the psychedelic trip is something I find really interesting. And the very first podcast that Pip and I did about psychedelics, one of the things we talked about was what's the difference between different psychedelics? Is there a difference other than just sort of duration of onset? Because people who use different psychedelics will almost always say that they experience different types of trip on different psychedelics but then is that because that's what they're expecting to experience and it's incredibly difficult to know so Pip's suggestion on the podcast was that he would be a guinea pig and uh, <laughs> we, we, we would give him something and not tell him what it was and he'd have to try and uh, see whether he could work it out from the trip uh, but I don't so apparently a TV company got in touch with him about making that as a program I don't know whether that's going to happen but um I mean, if you can't get ethics, do it on TV. That's what some people say, not me. Certainly not me, but that's what some people say. But, uh, yeah, that's not, a, not an answer to your question. But <laughs> Talk about the TV, it just reminds me, I'm going to talk quite a few years ago now about psychedelics, and the person talking was talking about suggestibility, actually, interestingly, and, uh, and one of the members of the audience got quite upset and, and said, look, I took... Uh, I, I, Know, it's side of side and other scene. She said, "You know, I, I saw my own DNA, and I know I did." And he said, "What did it look like?" So it's like a colourful, spirally kind of a thing. He said, "You do realise that's how DNA is. <laughs> that's, what, that's how you've seen it. That's not." And it was a really it's combination of, of, of a profound experience, a genuinely profound experience, but also it's overlaid with expectation. It's overlaid with. So yeah, I mean, I think it's just a fascinating. So yeah, maybe get um, yeah, get that. And get also, that how point. on earth do you? assess what the psychedelic experience is like in a research study because it's it's sort of impossible to understand as you're experiencing it let alone trying to explain it to someone else or you know um someone sitting in a room taking notes of like and then the person said that everything had gone blue and then they said that the carpet was alive and you know all of this kind of thing so it's that doesn't really get across what it's like so i interviewed quite a few people about um what their experiences on various different drugs were for the book and some of the things that I was told are brilliant some of them have made it in like someone who said that I think it was being on ketamine they tried to walk across the floor but it was like it was sponge cake yes. or something like that mm. so it was yeah that was very interesting and eye-opening hearing mm. about other people's experiences on drugs as well 
I have to ask you before we uh, get in, just because you've done a lot of work on this and because we've recently had uh, an interesting intervention from the World Health Organization on this subject. Where, in your view, are we in terms of vaping and e-cigarettes and what we know about the relative harms of vaping compared to tobacco, the messaging that's coming out around that and, and what the impact of that might be on reducing harms associated with tobacco use in the long run? We are not where the WHO say we are. I don't know if anyone saw their uh, Twitter thread a couple of days ago, but they did a sort of Q&A about vaping and they didn't say it exactly, but they basically said that vaping is harmful, uh, vaping liquid is very flammable, which I've never heard anyone say before. Mm. Um, they, they are, one of the questions that they asked was, is vaping safer than tobacco cigarettes? And they didn't answer that question yes or no, but they said that depending on the strength of vaping, of the nicotine and vape liquid and the other chemicals in vape liquid, it could be more or less harmful, sort of completely avoiding talking about tobacco at mm. all. From all the evidence that we have, we know when smoking first sort of became very popular, we didn't know that it was harmful. And then when we found out that it was harmful, we didn't know why, but we know now, we know what the things are in tobacco smoke that are harmful. And when we look at vape, we, those things that are harmful in tobacco smoke, if they are in vape or either the liquids or in the actual vape itself, if they are there, they're there at orders of magnitude lower than they are in tobacco smoke. Vaping might have other unintended consequences, but compared to cigarettes on the things that we know that are harmful about cigarettes, they are a lot safer. Now, no drug use is without harm, and that's, the vaping is not without the risk of harm. But compared to cigarettes, it's, it's substantially less harmful. Basically, my advice to you is don't do either. But if you're a smoker and, you want, and you're trying to stop smoking, then absolutely switch to e-cigarettes immediately. Ideally, try and come off e-cigarettes at some point, but not at the risk of going back to smoking. E-cigarettes are safer than smoking. You heard that, was e that was the easiest <laughs> question to answer of the night. Yeah, it's such a shame the World Health Organization has made that made that more complicated than it needs to be. I'm going to end on a final question, which you can answer or, or not, as, as you wish. Um, were an alien to walk into this room now and look around and say to you, why do humans take drugs? What would your answer be? I think most people take a drug for the first time because they think it's going to be fun. And quite often it can be. I think people tend to take drugs for three reasons. To feel good, to feel better, or to do better. So, like, drugs are quite often a very social thing, so they can sort of make you feel part of a group. I mean, that, like, when we go to the pub and have a drink, that's kind of what we're doing. If you think about why people use alcohol, that's probably why people use a lot of other drugs. But then sometimes people will use drugs as a crutch, so to f make themselves feel better if things are difficult. To Like, people use alcohol to manage sort of social anxiety all the time if you're having to go to a, a social event that you're not particularly fussed about going it feels much easier after you've had a drink and that's sort of that kind of managing an awkward situation by feeling a little bit more relaxed or a little bit less inhibited and I think some people might also use some substances uh, to like particularly things like stimulants um, to sort of some people do use these kind of things at work to help them kind of 
get through a long shift. It's not a very good idea to do that because they can often have other consequences as well that will make... Like reading about lorry drivers who use amphetamine to sort of try mm. and stay awake and you might feel like you're more awake, but your reactions are probably affected. Your ability to drive is definitely impaired by being on mm. amphetamines and, and, yeah, not in a good way. I think people use drugs for all sorts of reasons, but it's people do use drugs and people have been using drugs for many, many years. Oh, I've forgotten his name. I always forget his name. There's an anthropologist whose surname is Brown. Darren? Daniel? D. Brown, let's call him. <laughs> <laughs> and that he um, made a list of human universals, so things like things that you see in human cultures, across different cultures and across history, and things like play, you see, and things like communication and language, you see. But you also see... Um, psychoactive substance use across all sorts of different cultures across history so it is like humans have used drugs for a long time humans like using drugs just on that what about do you think just be there's pleasure but what about just being different as well do you think that's also a motivation it's just the motivation of feeling different or, or, or seeming to be different is that in, in itself enough yeah yeah that's like, a that's a good well? point actually that i don't think that is covered by those three those three things. Maybe I have to add a fourth one. It doesn't fit nicely with the feel better, do yeah. better. I need to think about how to work that in in a good way. But yeah, no, I think yeah, to to experience to feel different. Mm. That's a good mm. one. Yeah. Anyway, I, I think it's time that you all felt different by joining in this conversation. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm going to stop there. That's been absolutely brilliant. I could have carried on for ages, but I'm not going to. So. I'll hand that over to the to the floor, and I don't know if you want to just. Thank you all. And there you go. Thank you again for downloading and for listening to the very end of this podcast. You are clearly my favourite people. Uh, I hope that you can make the live podcast record on the 7th of March or some of the other events around the country. And in the meantime, come back in two weeks where we've got an incredible discussion with the DSM Foundation and the utterly inspiring Fiona Spargo Mabs talking about how her son's death led her to start the foundation in the hope of improving drugs education so other families are spared the suffering that her family has been through. It's really, really well worth a listen. This conversation really affected me and made me think about things in a different way and just was utterly inspiring. So come back then and I'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.